Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Bless him, Lord. In Jesus' name, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that he's a man that diligently seeks after you and seeks after your word and what you're saying, Father God. And Father, I declare a blessing over all of our ears as we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> all right. Lord, I pray that uh, you let the preparation of my heart and the, my meditations be acceptable in your sight. <clears throat> in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> starting with the new year, um, we're, putting, we're going to start with a series, we don't really know how long it's going to go, not, not super long, I mean, we're not going to go through the end of March with it, but we're going to do a series on, it's a character study on Moses, because we haven't really done a character study in a while, and so we're going to use Moses as a character study for, like, basically uh, what he does right, what he does wrong, things we can learn from, uh, just and, and what God's truth can be revealed looking at Moses' life. So that's the character study. And so we're going to start that off, part one. Uh, today, just so you know, there's, there's not going to be a whole lot of like practical application because it's mostly setting the scene for the series, uh, kind of putting him in his context and uh, just kind of setting it up so that we can go forward with, uh, with his study. So one of the most recurring phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've read that, is there's nothing new under the sun. And that basically means that the vast majority of issues that we face or situations that we have to deal with have been experienced in some form or other by somebody who's gone before us. All we have to do is just look into the accounts of the past and we can see very similar uh, experiences that we can learn from. So it's profitable to look at examples of uh, lives of people to help shed light on our own contexts. So we're going to do that with this character study on Moses. So I'm going to read, basically we're going to cover all of Exodus 1, and then the first 10 verses in Exodus 2. And we're going to break it down in a couple of uh, subcategories. So... Exodus 1, there's 22 verses, so it's 1 through 22, so bear with me as I read this, <clears throat> and the context is that this is the environment that gets set up surrounding Moses' birth. So he's born into this environment. So starting in verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So that's where we ended Genesis. So this is, so here we are, setting the scene. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Came across one estimate said it was somewhere around 60, 600,000 males. So that's not counting women and children. <clears throat> then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, 
The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, and so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were uh, Shifra and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come. <clears throat> so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Because the midwives feared God, they gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So that's chapter 1. What a dire situation for Israelites to be in. There's a, you get this Pharaoh on the scene, and he starts getting paranoid of the Israelites. He starts getting concerned about like them being a threat to the nation. You know, you could probably insert commentary, political commentary now about open doors and all kinds of stuff. Uh, we won't get into that too much, but we, we have a leader of a nation making things harsh on the Israelites because he forgot the favor with which the Israelites like brought to Egypt and, and, and the just the salvation and the organization that their presence and that Joseph's presence is, is met. So I'm not going to get into like which dynasty because it's not really decided what dynasty was under Joseph and what dynasty took this over. Most people believe it's Ramses II. That's fine. We can go with that. Um, so but we're going to do a little breakdown here. So from all of this, we're going to pull out these things. Pharaoh feared the perceived danger of the Hebrews. He was afraid of them. Because should they turn against Egypt, they would be... Uh, a massive force of people inside the country that could do a lot of damage. So he feared them. So we look at this scenario and we think, what can we see of Pharaoh based on his actions? All right, so we're going to pull this back and kind of like read into Pharaoh the best we can. And what we see is as he comes on the scene and he starts making this case with uh, the Egyptians, we can see that Pharaoh is already a tyrant at heart. He already has a plan to be tyrannical and, and to be oppressive. He intends to rule through oppression and forced servitude. And based on this intent, the Hebrews, who have lived a very prosperous life in Egypt, if the Pharaoh is now intending to be oppressive towards them, the natural expectation of their response is going to be they're going to revolt. So he's already anticipating what's going to happen as a result of his oppressive policies. 
So Pharaoh conspires to remove this threat in three ways. First, he launches a propaganda campaign. He tells the Egyptians in verse 9, the sons of Israel are more mightier than we. They're more of a threat. They're a threat to our republic. They're a threat to our democracy, right? They're a threat to our kingdom. And they need to be dealt with. And I don't know if you guys follow the news or not, modern day news, if I, if I phrase the term Twitter files, how many of you know what's going on? Right? The Twitter files. Right? Elon Musk opened up all of the files of communication between Twitter and several major government organizations showing that the leaders at Twitter were conspiring with government offices to hide certain bits of information, to promote other bits of information, and saying that it never happened. Uh, like the communication's already out there now. He's opened it up. Um, whether you like that or not, that's what happened. That's what the Twitter files are. But what you see in this conspiring is a major propaganda campaign to bury certain information, to elevate other information for whatever ends uh, these agencies are wanting. So that's the first thing. He launches a propaganda campaign. Because even back then, they knew what we know now, that if you repeat a lie enough, people will start to believe it. You say it over and over and over and over, and people will start to believe it. <clears throat> so he launches this propaganda campaign. They're a danger to Egypt. They're, they're parasites into our culture. They're going to overthrow us. They're going to upset everything that we know about the Egyptian way and what it is to be Egyptian. Secondly, he harshly oppresses the male Hebrews into forced labor. And then third, he makes an order to kill newly born Hebrew males. He does this in two ways. He instructs the midwives to kill the boys. Well, that kind of backfires because midwives feel, fear God more than they do Pharaoh. So they're not going to do that. And they have a, a pretty good uh, pretty good backstory. You're like, oh, these ladies are giving birth before he can even get there. It's like, we, we can't, can't kill them. You know? So then he's like, all right, throw them all into the Nile. Like he's, he's trying to do this campaign to, to, to reduce the amount of Hebrew males from the equation. So we're going to pull some of these principles out. Because <clears throat> we know if we look at history, like history of oppression throughout the world, in order for an oppressive rule to keep power, they have to remove the threat of opposition. Namely, especially in this scenario, strong, healthy men. Why would they want to remove strong, healthy men? Because historically, men have been more difficult to subjugate. If somebody's going to lead a revolt, it's usually going to be run by a male or a group of males. Get rid of, get rid of the strength, right? Render them impotent. Um, a group of men bent on revolt can inflict significant damage. I mean, just look at the U.S. Founding Fathers and the American Revolution, right? Even today, we have a society called the Sons of the Revolution that pay homage to and keep that story alive of uh, those that, that were part of this revolution. Also, in the sequence, men are the initiators of the reproduction sequence, right? That's why many war captives and slaves end up getting either castrated or killed to prevent more population happening. So there's a danger of multiplying the unwanted population. So the issue 
at the start of the chapter is that, hey, they're getting too numerous. We need to whittle their numbers down. <clears throat> and so there's this, try to get rid of the initiators of reproduction, get rid of the men. Resolution, so he's got these resolutions that he's going to do. Resolution to um, subjugating the men is to keep the current men busy and tired through oppressive forced labor. So they can't organize, so they can't say, hey, we need, over, we need to do something, we need to overthrow something. His other resolution is to remove the reproductive capacity. Historically, you either kill the males, castrate the males, or modernly, uh, you have things known as forced sterilization. I don't know if you've ever heard about this. With, uh, in the early 1900s, the eugenics program that came out of America was actually adopted by the Nazis later on, but it came out of America to sterilize unwanted people from reproducing, usually the mentally ill and uh, non-whites, pretty much. That's the historical guise of this forced sterilization that they just do it. I mean, like, even Planned Parenthood today, founded by who? Margaret Sanger. What was Margaret Sanger's main goal? To keep black people from reproducing. That was Margaret Sanger's goal. And that carries on to this day. If you look at the, the numbers of abortions that take place in Planned Parenthood, overwhelmingly black and brown people. Like It's like that, that mission never faltered. They just changed the terminology for it. Pharaoh realized this. Pharaoh's doing this. In the 1970s, there was a whole sterilization program for Native American women where they went in and did health care and then sterilized them so that the Native Americans wouldn't reproduce. Wow, that's happening in the 20th century? Yeah, yeah, and it's still going on. And then even today, not to get too political, but the chemical castration via puberty blockers and transgender medication is now rendering a whole group of typically males unable to reproduce. Hmm. Nothing new under the sun, right? This happened with Pharaoh 4,000 years ago. <clears throat> so why is Pharaoh having such an issue succeeding in this? Because the Hebrew people and the Hebrew midwives maintained a fear of the Lord. And they were obedient to him. They were obedient to the promises of God. You know, be fruitful, to multiply. They're obedient to the Lord more than they are to Pharaoh. In the face of, to use a common phrase, government mandates that dictated the contrary. Just leaving it out there. All right, so that's the environment that Moses is born into. Man, what a situation. So by all means, uh, by the intent of this Pharaoh, Moses should have never seen the light of day, period. Like that, that is the scenario. So that is going to move us into his birth. So this is Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10, <clears throat> events of Moses' birth, and then God's doing, right? Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Most of you know Moses and his brother were priests. That's why Aaron ends up becoming a high priest, because that's from the line of Levi. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that it was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So she secretly held on to this baby for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, so that'll make it a little bit more waterproof as much as possible. 
She placed the child in it and put it amongst the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then this child's older sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to the child. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverside, <clears throat> she and her attendants. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and sent her female slave to go get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Then his sister, who's kind of spying out, just kind of pops up out of the bushes, right? Oh, hey, uh, should I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? You know, so like all of a sudden this wonderful opportunity. So the princess is like, yeah, yeah, go, go get one. So the girl goes to the baby's mother, right, her mom, you know, tells her the story. Hey, the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you, right? So, so the daughter goes and tells mama, like, hey, you know, like little baby was in the basket. Pharaoh's princess found her and wants to keep him, but she needs a wet nurse. So now mama gets to nurse her baby until the baby's fully weaned. Like, you couldn't have stacked that in the deck if you tried, right? I mean, like, that was definitely God doing something. <clears throat> so, you know, Mama goes and nurses uh, her baby boy till he's weaned. And the child grows older. She takes him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes her son, adopted. Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. So that's how he gets his name, saying, I drew him out of the water. I didn't do the research just because I was crunched on time, but so apparently Moses, the name of Moses, means something about drawing out of water. You can look up in Hebrew. You could Google it real quick. Um, but usually if they give a name and then an explanation as to why they named it, the name has some sort of relation to that sentence. Like Isaac, called laughter, because he laughs, right? Because both Sarah and Moses laughed when Isaac was born. <clears throat> so let's distill that down. Moses is born right in the middle of Pharaoh's propaganda campaign and his government mandates. And here we have a Levite mother willing to defy Pharaoh's order as long as possible, right? And she makes it three months, right? She makes it three months and tries the best way she can to, to save her baby in this basket. I couldn't imagine, you know, Alethea was born in June. I couldn't imagine in September putting her in a basket and leaving her in a lake. I mean, I, I, I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine any mother... Uh, being in that kind of a situation. And I don't know, I don't know what she went through for that. Wouldn't even claim to try to know that what she went through. And the little, little sister, you know, older sister keeps tabs on the basket and then sees an opportunity when Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket, right? And so God, God arranged all of this. Moses' mother didn't have a clue this was gonna happen. The daughter didn't know what was going to happen because there's really nothing she could do if she saved it. And, you know, if somebody else found out, they'd kill the baby anyway, right? It just happens to be Pharaoh's daughter who locates this thing. Like, that, that's an act of God right there. Has the maid retrieve it. Has pity on the crying baby. Why? Because people who are still in touch with their humanity, that humanity has more weight than any propaganda campaign there is out there. Most of the propaganda campaigns for uh, atrocious stuff are about keeping anybody who would interfere uh, quieted, you know, subdued, made passive. Uh, and so there's this whole thing going on. But most of us know that people who have spent a lot 
of time in political offices tend to be disconnected with the reality of the real world, right? They don't realize, realize that their, their wonderful policies are actually hurting people down the chain. They just, they, most of them don't even have a clue because they've never experienced it, right? So this is kind of what's happened. Pharaoh doesn't have a clue. What Pharaoh, uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't have a clue what his policies are doing, right? She kind of might know about it in theory, might have heard about it in dinner discussions. But in real life, sitting right here with a crying baby in a basket, like all of those theories don't match up with the reality. And so she takes a different approach uh, with this baby. And she's uh, the princess, and so she, you know, she probably nags her dad enough that he goes, oh, I can't handle it. Okay, it's just one more baby, right? One more baby. That's fine. Okay, keep it as your little pet, like Hebrew child. I can, I can see that happening. And so princess tells the daughter, you know, hey, go, go get a wet nurse. Let her nurse it. Boy grows up, goes into the palace, is named Moses, and becomes an adopted grandson to Pharaoh. So that's that's how Moses got to where he was. So here's our principle. All through this, right, this entire environment, Moses' birth, Moses' upbringing, his social surrounding, um, in no way is influenced by Moses' gifts, talents, abilities, or even personality. There's nothing in Moses' capability that could have affected any of this completely out of his hands. There's nothing he could have done. They're all elements out of his control. <clears throat> and similarly for us, there are going to be a ton of things in your environment and my environment, in our lives, that we have little to no control over. I can't control the inflation. I still can't accu accurately explain why in October, I could buy 18 eggs for a buck 79, <laughs> and last week I just went and bought them, and they're eight dollars and 59 cents. Right? There's nothing I can do to affect that price, except maybe not buy the eggs. Yeah, go to Costco. So, so we're looking at 42 cents, 46 cents an egg right now. I mean, I did the math because they had like a bulk, and I was like, oh, if I, what if I bought the bulk? And it was only like 41 cents. Like, ooh. So. That's out of my control, right? Moses had this situation that was out of his control. <clears throat> However, we find ourselves in these environments. Moses found himself in this environment. When he gets to a point where he can act and affect things, when we are in situations where we can act and affect, if we work hard to influence what we can in a positive, God-honoring way, that is the key to avoiding, no matter what your situation is, the key to avoiding what we are now calling a victim mentality. Oh, everything's against me. Everything, you know, that I can't do anything. Like, that's a victim mentality. And that's not what God's called us to be. He's called us to have this victor mentality. So when we work hard to influence what we can in positive God-honoring ways, it doesn't matter what the outcome is based on the environment. We are building an internal resiliency and that is what a victory mentality is, is the ability to be resilient against anything that comes against us. And we get that by catching this vision of God. We get that by catching this vision of the kingdom of heaven that, that transcends all of our situations. Many saints have, have, in the past, have gone to their death with a solid vision of who Jesus is, that the death 
was irrelevant. Their situation was irrelevant because they were so enraptured with the goodness of God and what God was uh, that the, anything on this world, it just kind of fell away. So that's the key is working hard to honor God in whatever environment you find yourself in. And what we find is that if we misalign our focus, we begin to worry about what God isn't doing, which leads to fear, frustration, anxiety, and depression. And we see that show up with the Hebrew people as Moses is trying to lead them out of Egypt. We see this fear, right? God brought us into the wilderness to die. You know, we'll get into this later, right? We see a frustration. We're tired of eating all this manna. You know, we want something else. Give us quail. Anxiety. Oh no, we're up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's coming against us. God brought us out here so they could slaughter us because there's not enough graves back in Egypt. Right? Depression. We're stuck in this wilderness over and over and over for 40 years. Right? So we see this happening with the Hebrew people because at that point... They, they were choosing not to see what God was doing, right, which is a focus on God, but they're misaligning that focus, and now they're focusing on what God's not doing, and it creates this negative ethos um, around them. Moses didn't have that, right? I mean, like, Moses grew up in the palace. He grew up in a position of power, in an environment of power. So he saw things differently. So when that got married later on with this vision of God starting at the burning bush, like he becomes a force for the Israel people, the Israelites, because of having this victor mentality and not a victim mentality. So if we do what Moses did in his upbringing to put our focus right, We'll be too busy doing our due diligence to worry about God doing his part because we'll be trusting God to do his part. And so that's, that's a major thing. It's, it's a paradigm shift with a lot of us because a lot of us, we, we face frustration because we're trying to do God's part and we're neglecting to do our part. <clears throat> a little side note, many of you probably heard of Jordan Peterson He's not a good theologian. He's a great psychiatrist. He's not a theologian, even though he's doing the lessons on the Bible and stuff. Jordan Peterson. He's fabulous. Yeah, but he's got some solid stuff. To distill it all down, he's got a, he's got a book called 12 Rules for Life, right? It's not a Christian book. I, I, don't go read this as a devotional. The very first chapter, you know what it's titled? Make your bed. Make your bed every day. Why? Because... His response is that like all of all of these big protesters and stuff, you know, like all these college campus protests and everything, like his biggest thing is like you guys are out there trying to change the world and you can't even change your bedroom. <laughs> You're trying to make the world a better place and you can't even make your bedroom a better place. So he's the, and the crux of that is don't worry about the things you can't control. You put your energy on the things that you can control. What can I do? I can make my bed in the morning. What can I do? I can pay my bills on time, right? I, you know, employment allowing, right? What can I do? I can choose where to put my money. I can either blow it on a bunch of video games or maybe I can invest it in something a little bit more worthwhile, you know? Um, 
so there's this this whole thing about like being wise with the things that you can influence kind of makes you too busy to worry about the things that you can't influence which means if if you're focusing on that trying to do this in a God-honoring way following the voice of the Lord you're going to trust more that God's going to do his part on his end the things that he can influence that are beyond you <clears throat> uh, I've heard uh, I've heard it said somewhere, I, I tried to pull this quote up somewhere, I can't remember where I heard it from. Maybe one of you would remember. But it's something along the lines of, you have your part to do, and God has his part to do, but woe to the person that confuses the two. Because that's where failure and frustration and the willingness to give up comes in, because we're focusing on trying to do what it's God's part to do. So when we pull all of this out, right, what is our principle in this? Is that Moses didn't have any influence whatsoever in this entire environment. A lot of our environment we don't have any influence on. And I think because we tend to confuse God's part and our part, that we think that because we came from a rough environment or a bad environment or a bad background, that we are somehow at fault for not succeeding where somebody who didn't have that background did succeed. And that's not true. That's not true. Whatever you're brought into in this world, whatever happens that's not your fault, it's not your responsibility. There's no shame in being put in an environment outside of your control. That's not your choice. You didn't have anything to do with that. You can't influence that one way or the other. There's no shame in that. We don't take on that responsibility. What we do do is we focus on developing this God character, this God-entranced life. And when we do that, we start taking responsibility for the things that we can influence. And we partner with the Holy Spirit in advancing the kingdom of heaven in whatever way that he calls us to. It's being faithful with the little that we do have because that's the only way that we're going to be entrusted with more. Whether that's finances, whether that's social influence, whether that is career trajectory. If we're faithful with the little stuff that God gives us, God will trust us with more. We're not going to get to the more by complaining and worrying about, oh, you know, I, I can never, I was born in this situation, so I'm kind of doomed we're not doomed. I was born into a situation where, like, by all rights, I should still be uh, in rural Illinois with uh, a bunch of kids, probably from, from different people, like not married, and living on welfare. I mean, that's kind of the, the economic depression of my area back there. And you know what? God called me at 14. I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And I, I, I took wisdom, I read the scriptures, I asked the Lord for guidance, and here I am up here, you know, helping pastor this wonderful church, married to a fantastic woman, got three beautiful babies that are just happy and healthy with life, and I'm doing infinitely better than just about anybody else in my family has ever done. And that's, that's not because I have this all together. It's because God kind of dragged me through this situation and just said, be faithful, be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. 
I mean, like, not that like I'm the, the superstar of success, right? But from where I came from, and, and I know Kara can identify with this. She's out there somewhere because she came from a very similar background. Like, it's, it was tough. It was a lot of hard work. But the Lord took care of his part and just asked me to be faithful with my part. That's all it was. <clears throat> and then I put my hand to work and being faithful with what the Lord called me to. <clears throat> and in my life, the times I find myself most frustrated and anxious is when I'm focusing on what God's not doing in my time frame. It is, and I'm still learning that. So having all that, said all that, you know, this is, this is kind of a short one just to set the stage for Moses. <clears throat> this is our conclusion. We're going to just summarize some of this. We have Moses born into an, an environment hostile to his survival. He should have never seen the light of day. He had no way of avoiding this doom, right? Pharaoh had intended by tyrann to be tyrannical toward the Hebrews and devised a way to halt an anticipated revolt because of his policies by trying to remove the male element through labor, male infanticide, and propaganda. Moses' mother defied Pharaoh for as long as she could, and even, even, even at that final time where she had to give the baby up, like tried to make as protective of a basket as possible to give Moses as much of a chance of survival as possible. It was God that set up the timing for Pharaoh's daughter to see Moses in the basket. It was God's timing for his sister to still be spying on the basket when this happened and to recommend a nurse, right? Moses was adopted into the royal family, given a royal upbringing, and all of this was part of God's doing. Thank you. Uh, apart from Moses. Moses... God did all of that. He set that whole stage. And then Moses just is born into it. But the time would come for Moses to start making decisions and to partner with God. And that partnering, we will see, is a legacy that's lasted for 4,000 years. Mm -hmm. So that's our conclusion. Now for anybody in here that it's not familiar with this whole Christian thing. Anybody listening on the podcast or hearing this later? And even, even Christians, right? Because we're, we're subject to misaligning from time to time as well. Sometimes it might feel like things are out of our control. That we're filled with anxiety. We're filled with angst. We're filled with unease. We might have trouble sleeping at night because of it. Or we're worried that issues may or may not arise. Like we, we, sometimes we worry about things that, that might not even ever happen. We call it a vain imagination in Christian lingo, right? We're just making up scenarios and then worrying about it, and it's often not even based in reality. But maybe we're trying to worry about the details on God's part and neglecting our part. Make our bed, right? What, what we can influence, we do. To change that and put our focus on God in the right place for our life as the Lord and Savior, as a provider, as a protector, and as a redeemer sets the stage for the influx of God's peace to flow into our lives. So I'm going to pray a prayer about that. And uh, then if anybody here needs prayer, grab, grab anybody that, that you know is you know a trustworthy prayer person and, uh, and go to the throne. So, dear Heavenly Father, I experience anxiety. I experience fear. Um, I'm having a hard time focusing on you. 
Um, maybe, maybe I don't have a relationship with you, but I hear that you can make all things new. I hear that you can start changing environments outside of my control. And if that's so, I want to trust you in that. And I want to be able to acknowledge you as my Lord, my Savior, my Redeemer, as somebody that I can go to for dealing with the difficulties in life and just having a change. <clears throat> and if any of you are a Christian and you're facing this, dear Lord, like I've served you, I've called you my Lord and Savior, and in this particular area, whatever it is, you can name it, I'm struggling to let you do your part and for me to do my part. Lord, and, and I'm struggling not trying to do your part or stressing about you not doing it in a way that I think should be done. And I'm losing my peace over it. I'm losing my calm over it. And, and I'm experiencing more anxiety and more frustration. And so, Lord, will you come in? Will you help me realign my focus? Teach me what my part is. Give me my marching orders and the things that I should focus on. And help me, Lord. Just as the guy uh, in the Gospels that says, Lord, I believe I help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief that you will do the right thing on your part in the right timing. Help me to trust you in that. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, if anybody on the podcast, if you prayed that prayer, uh, you'll get a hold of a Christian that you know, uh, that you trust, and you can talk with us about. Uh, otherwise, you're more than welcome to email at us at uh, info at tgpchicago.com. That's info at tgpchicago.org. I'm sorry, tgpchicago.org. And if you're in here and you're experiencing some of that, grab a prayer partner, go to the throne, and hear from the Lord. So God bless you all. We're going to wrap it up. Do you want to do a closing? So John's going to come up and do a closing uh, song, and uh, we'll uh, close it out right after that. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.